Brothers and sisters, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon today. We are going to be together in the next text of our series as we go through the top three sixteens of the Bible. We come this week to the next in our series, 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16. For context, I'm going to back up and I will read starting in verse 9 all the way to verse 17. And I'll ask if you'll please stand with me as we read together Holy Scripture from 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 9 to verse 17. This is God's holy word for us, His people. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is God's holy word for us, his people today. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you for the gift of Scripture, and we thank you that it has the power of life, that it has your power and your strength because it's your voice coming to us in human words. We thank you that we have the chance to hear your Scriptures read, and we ask that you would bless the reading of your Word, and now especially the preaching of your Word. May you write its truth upon our hearts and mark our lives with what you show us today. You be our teacher, and we will give you the glory as we worship you through the preaching of the word. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the first century, there was a very important man named Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish man born in the Jewish homeland in Israel. And he lived from about the year 37 to 100. So to put that in perspective, he was born around the time that the Apostle Paul became a Christian. And he died around the time the book of Revelation was written. And the reason he's so important is because Josephus was a historian. He was an ancient historian. 
And he wrote about the history of the Jewish people in a very long book called The Antiquities of the Jews. And he started back in the beginning, and he told the story of the Jewish people up to his own day. That book was written towards the end of his life in the 90s. But he's most famous for the first book that he wrote about the Jewish people. It was a book written in the early 70s of the first century, and it's called The Jewish War. You see, Josephus was an eyewitness of the war between the the Judeans and the Galileans, the people of the Jewish homeland, and the Romans. He was there fighting on the side of his fellow Jews in Galilee, but then he ended up being captured, and he joined the Romans to bargain for his life. He saved his life by joining the Romans afterward, and he spent the rest of the war watching as an eyewitness from the Roman side. And he lived the rest of his life as a Roman. He is so important because he's our best source for information about the Jewish world of the first century and what happened in that horrific war. The Jews went to war, and Josephus was trying to explain why. He's writing for his Greek and Roman audience, and he wants to do some, a bit of apologetics to sort of put his people in the best possible light. So he picks the people he wants to blame for the war, and he tries to make the good, the goodness of the Jews stand out and put blame on other people and say, look, you've got the Jews all wrong. It's these bad folks who led the people astray. It's not that the Jewish people are bad. So Greeks and Romans... Jews are your friends, so don't, don't, uh, don't treat them harshly. It was a bit of an apologetic. And he tries to tell them, the Romans, why the Jews went to war. And this is what he says. He says, the Jews went to war because they misunderstood and misinterpreted a prophecy in their scriptures. Now, we're not exactly sure which scripture he has in mind. Maybe in the book of Micah, maybe in the book of Daniel. It's not clear to me what what, uh, prophecy he's thinking of. But he says, the Jews went to war because they were misled and led astray by people who misinterpreted what the prophecy meant. They thought the prophecy meant that a man from Judea would be exalted to become the ruler of the world. So a Jewish man from Judea will become the Lord of the world. That's the prophecy. And he says, they misunderstood it. Actually, Josephus clarifies in his interpretation, the prophecy didn't mean that a man from Judea, a Jewish man, was going to become the ruler of the world. No, the prophecy meant that a man in Judea at the time would be exalted And then he would go up from Judea to the throne and be ruler of the world. So you see the difference. Josephus says, this prophecy was fulfilled not by a Jewish man, but by a Roman man. Josephus says, this was fulfilled by the Roman general Vespasian, who was the head of the Roman legions who destroyed Israel trashed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Josephus said, ah, it's about Vespasian, who was in Judea at the time when he received the news that the emperor in Rome has died and you have been chosen to be the new emperor. 
So, aha, perfect fulfillment. Who could argue with it? And in fact, this is how Josephus saved his life. Josephus was heading up some troops in Galilee. They just get slaughtered. Josephus is taken prisoner. And he has a confrontation with Vespasian. Josephus should have been crucified. End of story. Just horribly put to death. End of Josephus. But Josephus says, ah, Vespasian. There's a prophecy in our scriptures about you. And I'm here to tell you that... Before you leave Judea, you will become emperor. You will be exalted to be the Lord of the world. And Vespasian says, okay, all right, let's make a deal. You'll be my prisoner, and if the prophecy comes true, you'll be free. But if it doesn't, you're going to wish you were never born. It's okay. Josephus says, deal. And wouldn't you know it, before the war is over... The emperor in Rome dies. News travels across the sea into the Middle East, down into Judea, down to Jerusalem. And Vespasian is told the emperor has died and you are the new emperor. You need to go to Rome. Perfect. A man in Judea gets exalted to be the Lord of the world. And he goes from Judea to Rome to rule the world. Perfect. So Josephus is free. And he makes a deal. He's going to live as a comfortable, cozy Roman for the rest of his life. So it worked out really well for Vespasian and for Josephus. Now, what's the point of this story? Why do I go into this? Because it's so interesting what this story tells us about what Josephus believed about this prophecy. Josephus believed that this Messiah wasn't going to be a Jewish man from Judea. The Messiah is Vespasian. The Messiah is a Roman general who becomes a Roman emperor. And what this means is Josephus believed that God had changed his residence. God had moved his headquarters from Jerusalem to Rome and was now on Rome's side. Just like Josephus. Josephus changed teams... Because that's what he believed God had done. God had forsaken Israel. His spirit, which dwells in Jerusalem's temple, had evacuated, was gone. And where did the spirit go? He went to Rome. And he exalted Vespasian to be the Lord of all. The Jewish people, according to Josephus, needed to repent and believe this good news. Vespasian is Lord in fulfillment of the scriptures and God has exalted him to his throne. Repent, believe, and get with the program. Just as God's spirit had departed the first temple, Solomon's temple in the Old Testament, and now he has departed the second temple as well. God's spirit now resides in Rome God is not Jewish anymore, he's Roman. That's the idea. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul interestingly tells the Corinthians a very similar story. Paul also believed that the Spirit of God had left the temple in Jerusalem. Paul also believed that God had changed residence Paul also believed God was on a new team. 
The Spirit of God has departed the temple in Jerusalem, and He has a new address, a new residence. He's got a new temple. And Paul says, it's not Rome, it's us. We are the new temple, the church. And what this means is, Jesus, not Vespasian, fulfills the prophecy. Jesus, not Vespasian, fulfills Scripture. Jesus, not Vespasian, is Lord and ruler of the world. God has not sided with the Romans, but with the Christians. God's Spirit now resides in the church, not in the palace of Rome. And therefore, Paul proclaims, repent and believe this good news, the real gospel, the true gospel, and get with this program, Jesus' program. When you hear the proclamation, Jesus is Lord, you have to hear the unspoken other side of that sentence. And Caesar is not. The church is God's temple, Not the temple in Jerusalem, which God proved is not his place of residence anymore by having it smashed and destroyed, and it's never been rebuilt. So that's not God's home. But God's not homeless. He's not wandering around in the world looking for a place to dwell. He has a home. He has a dwelling place. And the first thing we see in our passage is this, that the church is the true temple. In opposition to these false gospels, the gospel of Caesar, there is a true gospel, and it's the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus came to tell us, and Paul came to remind us that we have a new temple, a new dwelling place for God. So we see this first point in our text. If you look at verse 16, 1 Corinthians three 16, we're told, Do you not know... That you are God's temple. And then at the end of verse 17, in parallel to that, he says, you are that temple. So the beginning of verse 16 parallels the end of verse 17. And you'll see these parallels stack up between 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? End of verse 17, you are that temple. Now what you need to notice here is that our temptation is to read the Bible as though it was written to me and about me. And so that you is singular, me. <laughs> but the Bible didn't, wasn't written to us, it was written for us. But it wasn't addressed to us, it was addressed to a specific group of people in Corinth. And that word is not singular, it's plural. Now, we can't see that in English because you singular and you plural is is identical. But in Greek, it's crystal clear. You plural, you Corinthians, the lot of you, you guys are the temple. God's spirit dwells in you. The you is plural, which means the Holy Spirit dwells, the spirit of God dwells in the body, in the church. God inhabits the gathered church, the sacred assembly. And you have to appreciate how just ridiculous and audacious this had to sound to everybody else except the Corinthians who knew it to be true. 
we have to get out of our heads that in the first century, all these first churches were like 300, 400, 500,000 people. These weren't mega churches. How many Christians were there in Corinth? Maybe a few dozen. We're not talking about a tremendous, huge number of people with big, beautiful buildings. Now, in the church in Jerusalem was unusual. They had, a, they had thousands of people throughout Jerusalem who became Christians on Pentecost. But that's not common for every place the gospel went. In Corinth, there was probably a few dozen. And to be told, your little living room church, where you guys get together, that's the temple? Not the big, magnificent, glorious building in Jerusalem? Not the amazing palaces of Rome? Not the great Parthenon? In Athens, not these incredible shrines and temples with all this glory and grandeur. You mean our six people gathered around telling stories about Jesus and taking the Lord's Supper and worshiping together? That's where God's Holy Spirit dwells? We're God's temple? Absolutely astonishing that God would hide himself, so to speak, that he would... God is, I mean, he's transcendent. He made the universe with just a puff of his, of, of his breath. Let there be, and there it was. And you think he's cramped himself down to meet with us in our living room? Yes. Yes. Your little house church is the new Ark of the Covenant where God rides in glory among his people. Your little house church is where God sits in the holy of holies among his people. Absolutely astonishing. To be told this and to actually believe it. And the same church that was the house of God before is his house now. That we the church are the true temple of the Lord. And that God is with us by his spirit. With us. And this isn't just pretty poetry. He's here with you Christian. He's here in our midst right now. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in his church and when we gather together the spirit is in our midst he dwells among us and not only is the spirit dwelling in the midst of the gathered church but the holy spirit also indwells each and every one of us who are members of this church who are members of the body paul says this a little further on in first corinthians he says that in chapter 6 verse 19 he says do you not know That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Think about this. Think about your soul. Where is most of your soul? Or put it like this. Do you think there's more soul in your head than there is in your pinky finger? So there's like a pinky size of soul here. And then there's like a brain size soul here. And so there's a little bit of soul and the rest of the soul. Is it divided up like that? Actually, no. Your soul inhabits your whole body. Your whole soul is in every part of you. Because it's not a physical thing. It's not made of electrons and cells and energy and matter your soul is the life of your physical body and it fills every part of your body well that's the same way with the holy spirit 
he doesn't just dwell in the gathered assembly, but he inhabits every single member of the body fully. He's not more in Barry than he is in anybody else, although Barry would like to think so sometimes. No, I'm just kidding. Right? He's not in the, oh, the super Christians have more Holy Spirit and then the lousy Christians have a little less. No, we all have the whole Holy Spirit. Each of us dwelling in us. And as the body assembles, the whole body is present. Christ is the head of the body and the Spirit is the life of the body. And we're all gathered together. Christ and the Spirit make us a united body. And God the Father, by His Son and His Spirit, is with us. We are the temple of the Trinity. The temple of the Trinity. The true temple. And so you, Christian, you carry God with you wherever you go. Imagine that you are a little Ark of the Covenant. And God rides with you. That's why the third commandment is do not take the Lord's name in vain, but it's, it means carry. Don't carry his name in vain the way the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant. Don't carry the weight and glory of God the Spirit lightly. He is with you wherever you go. Do not carry him in vain. God dwells among us when we gather as his church because we are the true temple of the Lord. Now that takes us into the second point. Not only is the church the true temple, but the church is also God's holy place. That's the next line in verse 16 of our passage. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And then the next line is, and that God's spirit dwells in you, which parallels in verse 17, for God's temple is holy. Do you not know that God's Spirit dwells in you and God's temple is holy? We say in the creed every week, as we have done today, that we believe in the holy Catholic Church. Catholic being universal. We believe in the holy, universal, or Catholic Church. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what makes the church so holy? Because we can all identify churches that don't look very holy. We can identify members of churches that don't look very holy. We can look at ourselves and think, man, I'm a part of the church, but the church doesn't get its holiness from me. (laughs) I don't contribute much holiness at all. (laughs) Or maybe we're proud and think, you know, I'm carrying most of the holiness here, guys. Like, why aren't you guys helping me carry the ball for the team? It's heavy, all this holiness. What a burden. But we all have our crosses to bear. Right? Well, that's not where the holiness of the church comes from. It doesn't come from me and you. And if it did, we'd be be way worse than we are. And you wouldn't want to be here anymore. Now, the holiness of the church comes from the one who is holy, who dwells in our midst. Our holiness comes from the Holy Spirit, for we are His temple. The Holy Spirit makes the church holy. And what a relief that is to sinners like us. 
Not only does the church get its holiness from the Holy One, but we too, as members of the church, we get our holiness from the Holy One as well. The Holy Spirit sanctifies everything He touches. King Midas, everything He touched, turned to gold. Or for the younger ones, in Frozen, remember she would touch stuff and it would turn to ice. That's why she had to wear gloves. The Holy Spirit takes his gloves off and everything he touches, it doesn't turn to gold, it doesn't turn to ice. It gets holy. It becomes sacred. Everything the Spirit touches, he turns it sacred. He sanctifies us. Now Paul elaborates on this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul has this little interlude as he's talking about something else. He breaks off into this section where he talks about our holiness. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 to 7, chapter 7, verse 1. He says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now just remember, I didn't say this earlier, but just remember, Paul's writing these letters in the mid-50s. The temple in Jerusalem doesn't get destroyed for another 15 years. It gets destroyed in 70. So it's not like Paul's looking back on a heap of rubble and saying, clearly God doesn't live there anymore. They bulldozed his house. The Romans did. That's not what's happening. That temple is still standing there. The war hasn't even started. That doesn't happen for another decade in the 60s. So for all anybody else knows... The temple's always going to be there. And Paul says, no, that big, beautiful building isn't where the Spirit of God dwells. You are that temple. And so when he says here, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? He means, you wouldn't put an idol in the temple in Jerusalem, would you? Well, why do you accept idols into your life? If you're a temple too, why do you accept idols into your life? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. A glorious passage. The Spirit sanctifies us. God moves and walks in our assemblies. And because you're the church always, not just when you're here, you're the church at home and at work and at school and at the store and in traffic and in line, you're always the church. And you always carry God with you. And so we always are seeking to walk as those who carry the Holy Spirit with us, seeking to be further and further sanctified in our bodies and in our spirits we come into the church and enter the holy place where God dwells where the veil has been torn in two 
that we might worship him directly and receive his grace unhindered. That's why when we do a call to worship, we're not just goofing off. The call to worship is, Oh Lord, this is your temple. Come down and be with us. Really, not poetically and not metaphorically, but really meet with us, God. We have nothing without you. We need you to speak to us. We need you to change us. We need all your grace today. Just to stay saved, forget getting holy, just to stay Christian today. We need you. We need you to heal us. We need you to feed us. We need you to take care of us. We need you to teach us, change our minds, change our hearts, fix our problems. We belong to you and we need you to really come down and really be here. The call to worship is serious. We're inviting the Holy One to come to church and he really comes here. He really does dwell with us. When we come into the church, we are entering the holy place of the temple where God dwells. And we worship Him face to face, as it were. Paul elaborates this much more fully in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. We won't go there for the sake of time today. But that passage echoes so many things that we're talking about today. Ephesians 2, 18 to 22. And that takes us to our final point from our text today. The church is the true temple. The church is God's holy place. And finally, the church is God's building. Church is God's building. Back in 1 Corinthians 3, in verse 9, Paul says the church is God's building. He says that here in verse 9, For we are God's fellow workers... He's talking about himself and another Christian uh, preacher and teacher named Apollos. For me and Apollos are God's fellow workers. You, the Corinthian church, you are God's field, God's building. He had just been comparing the church to a field and him and himself and Apollos to workers in a field like farmers. And then he changes the image to builders. You are God's building. And he uses very similar language in Ephesians 2. Now, Paul means building in two different senses here. He means we are being built by God. We're sort of God's building project, the thing he's working on and constructing. But we're also God's building in the sense that he's the owner of the building. We are his possession. We are what he's doing. We are God's doing, God's building, and that verbal idea of constructing the church. But we are also God's building in the sense that he has the ownership of the church. We belong to him. Both Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2 describe Christians, you, an individual Christian, as a stone put in place as part of the temple building. So that as you get saved, there's a lot of metaphors we can use here. You're like a body part that's getting grafted into a body. Paul uses that a lot in 1 Corinthians. Or Paul says that you are a rock that God finds and he chisels and sands you down, shapes you and fashions you into a block and he sticks you into the construction of his temple so that you are a building block of the church, a building block of his temple. 
1 Peter 2 calls us living stones. He finds a living person lost in sin and saves that person and changes that person and fits you into his church among his people. That's one of the metaphors that the Bible uses for how the temple of God is constructed. Each of you is a stone in the temple structure built on the foundation of Christ. And he is the only foundation, Paul says. That's the idea of you are, a, you are being built by God. God's building in that sense. But we also are being built by God in the sense that we belong to him. The church belongs to him. Each of you and the church as a whole belongs to God as his sacred possession that he watches over zealously. You see this in the text. He says in verse 17, If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him for or because God's temple is holy. And that's you. So hear the zeal that God has for his temple, for his building, for his people, for the church. If anybody destroys God's temple, God destroys him. And you're that temple. That is amazing Good news. God will avenge those who touch his temple. It is his. God will avenge. And that's good news because that means God is on our side. He is with us. He is for us. He fights for us. He will avenge us. And that's why you don't have to take it upon yourself to avenge yourself. God fights for you. So Christians do not seek revenge. We leave it to God. But also it means that you should be careful how you build on the foundation. How you contribute to the church matters. In the middle of the passage we read, he talks about those who build on the foundation of Christ. And he says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones... Those are good things to use to build a temple. And then he he mentions three things that are not so good. Wood, hay, and straw or stubble. Not good items to build anything secure. Wood, hay, and stubble or straw. Wood you can get away with. Hay you would never use to build a house. If you had a house of hay, I would not come over for supper. (laughs) Because either the roof's going to cave in or you're going to burn the house down because... It's, it's made of hay. And that's what Paul says next. He says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So if you're building and contributing, if you're adding to God's temple, if you're participating in the church, if you are building with your time and talent and gifts and resources, if you're building and participating and contributing to this church and it's valuable and it's good, if it's gold, silver, precious stones, when the day of fire comes and it tests that work, it's going to survive because those things get purified by fire. They don't get consumed. But wood, hay, and straw, the day of fire will burn those things up. And we will suffer loss. Not go to hell, it doesn't say that. But we will suffer 
loss. It says in verse 15, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You're going to come into the kingdom singed. Singed. And we will suffer loss. So be careful how you build, how you participate in the church. This is a call for especially those who are new members. Think about how you're contributing or how you will contribute. And for the old members who've been here forever, are you still building on the foundation? Are you still contributing? Be careful how you build. The day of fire will reveal what you've contributed. And it's never too late to add gold and silver and precious stones to the foundation. There's only two verses from the Old Testament that I've memorized in Hebrew. And I didn't memorize them by on purpose. <laughs> it was just by accident. I happened to remember them from taking a lot of Hebrew classes in seminary. One of them is Genesis 1.1, which I'm not going to try and quote because I probably will botch it up since I'm on the spot. But the other is Psalm 121 verse 4. Behold, he who guards Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I will try to quote this one. Lo yanum velo yishan shomer Yisrael. Beautiful. Lo yen, behold, lo yanum, he does not slumber. Velo yishan, he does not even sleep. Who? Shomer, the guardian, the watcher, Israel. He who guards Israel does not sleep on the job. He doesn't nod off. He doesn't take naps. He doesn't take breaks. He doesn't take time off for holidays. He's always watching over us. We are God's building. We are safe in his protection. He will avenge us. He will guide us. He will guard us. He is zealous for you. Jealous over you. Forsake your idols Walk in His holiness. Understand that He is with us when we gather to worship. Christ is the foundation of a new temple. God dwells with us and in us. And isn't this the faith of Advent? Isn't this the faith of Advent? That Christ has come and He's with us. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. How is that? Because His Spirit is always with us. The Spirit of Christ dwells with us with us and in us. And it's in that spirit that we wait. And it's in the confidence of the gospel that we wait and pray and long for him to come again. For Christ in person, in the flesh, to come back down and dwell with us in his temple. Our call to worship is a little anticipation of the second coming. It's a little taste of the second coming. This is the faith of Advent. God dwells with us and he will dwell with us fully one day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God present with us, that you are fully with us in spirit. And we long for your spirit to touch our minds and hearts and lives, to touch our families and our homes, to touch our community, to touch our church family, 
to touch the forts and to make us holy, to sanctify us as you would have us to be. Help us to remember that we are little arcs of the covenant, little temples. Everywhere we go, we're always the church. We're always your temple. And may we never carry your name in vain. But may we be encouraged and strengthened to know that you are with us, that you gather with us, that you're on our side, that you guard us zealously. We, the church, we, each individual Christian, we are your true temple. We ask that you would dwell fully in us. And we ask, O Christ, that you would be born in us today and that one day soon you would come again, that we may see you face to glorious face. Strengthen us in that confidence and in that hope and give us courage to live in that hope day by day, no matter what comes. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.